This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call. Evidently, that's been difficult lately. The phones have been quiet. 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we got stuff going on here tonight. I'm going to be teaching Second Kings chapter 4, only the first seven verses tonight. Um, I, I Probably not enough for a whole Bible study, but I'll see what I can do. Uh, but uh, we're, we're now in Elisha's life. And in chapter 4, uh, it's just sort of a... a, a review of his miracles, um, really rich stuff. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvarysa.com. And then, of course, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the Date Day Show. That is tomorrow at 4 o'clock, and we would love to have you comments or your calls on that. I want to start today by uh, addressing a call that we only had time uh, at the end of the program. He called with like three minutes left. This was a call from Mike yesterday. And he was a little, I think, uh, confused um, that I had said somebody could lose their salvation or maybe I was being a little bit too harsh. Um, uh, Mike, what we did is we went back and looked at the question that you were asking about. And it was a rebroadcast from July 1st this year. And uh, it was a show when Paul and I were on vacation. And so on the rebroadcast, here was the original question. My daughter was baptized a couple of years ago, but just came out as bisexual. Did she lose her salvation? And my response to that wasn't it that you, you can't lose something that is given to you for free, something that is secured by the Holy Spirit. However, there are a lot of people who make professions of faith who aren't really saved. So this wasn't me judging her. This is somebody who um, was baptized a couple of years ago and in the interim uh, has decided that she wants to live a life that is in opposition to what a Christian would do. 
And that's very, very important. You know, um, um, this was a willful decision. This is a mom who's brokenhearted, uh, fearful for her daughter. But I think even on the mom's case, Mike, in this particular instance, um, you know, we have a tendency to put way too much weight on, on, on a couple of things. One, what people say. I'm a Christian, but, but if there's no change in your life, you didn't really meet Jesus. Uh, the parable of the sower explains that. Matthew chapter 13, but also um, the fact that we go through a ritual, uh, a ritual of baptism, doesn't mean we're saved. It's not like we can go get in the water and suddenly all of our problems, we don't have to follow Jesus anymore. Um, When you meet Jesus, you have to change. And here is a young woman who um, had an emotional experience, got baptized, uh, professed Christ, but has seemingly demonstrated in the couple of years since that she really never met him at all. You know, there's a lot of people, Mike, that know about Jesus, but who don't really know him. So this isn't one of those things where I'm saying, you know, you know, you can't do anything wrong. God knows our hearts. He knows our failures, our frailties. And and we're going to sin. Yeah, his question is about the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul struggled with his flesh. You and I, Mike, we struggle with our flesh. But it's never our intent when we get up in the morning to willfully oppose God. And people who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live a gay lifestyle. Or I'm a Christian who I'm going to live in a, in a, a heterosexual lifestyle or a bisexual lifestyle. Uh, I, I'm going to oppose what God says. I don't care. I'm going to keep having sex because that's what I want to do. That's a person, according to Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, those are people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's very important that we define those things correctly. The fact that somebody says they're a Christian is validated only by the fact of change in their life. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. But what it means is that when we meet Jesus, we want to be perfect. We aim for perfection. And that's why in Paul's autobiographical statement in Romans chapter 7. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. That's why he can come to the conclusion, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. So that wasn't Paul before he was saved. That was his everyday experience. And it's the same experience we have. But you see, the real Christian wants to please God. The professing Christian who really doesn't care about pleasing God, can't belong to God. By definition, you cannot belong to God. And Mike, I've said on this program many times, much to the chagrin of a lot of people, that personally, I believe fully 50% of the people that sit in churches every Sunday, faithful attenders of church, people that have been baptized, fully 50% of them aren't really born again. And you see, that's the plumb line. We must be born again. Jesus said that to to a moral, religious man, Nicodemus, and he said it twice. So the question is, are we born again? Have we met Jesus Christ? And if we've met Jesus Christ, there has to be a change. Paul said, writing to the churches in Thessalonica, he, he explained that, that uh, um, people are idolaters, they're 
they're liars, they're perverts, they're all these things. And then he says to, to the churches, or the Christians in Thessalonica, and such were some of you, but now. And see, that's the thing, Mike, we've got to change. And so that was the focus of my answer. And it was that the two-year time period. I got baptized, but two years later, I can come out as bisexual. And you just can't do that. Uh, you know, all sex. Uh, and believe me, Mike, I would say exactly the same thing to somebody who was involved in an in a, um, active heterosexual lifestyle. If you claim to know Jesus, then you can't be having sex with people you're not married to. And if you continue to do that, knowing you can't do it, then what makes you think that you're saved at all? And those are really important things. We need to be realists as Christians. We need to 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 stop just hoping. I realize when it's family members in particular will cling to any hope. Well, they, they answered an altar call 10 years ago. But if if somebody claims to be a Christian but hasn't lived a minute for Christ, why why do we want to kid ourselves? I mean, I would think that parents especially, family members, would want to pray effectively. And that means we have to pray honestly. Um, got a lot of people that I pray for. Lord, this person says they're saved. This person says they're okay with you. But there's zero fruit at all coming from their lives. So, Lord, you chase them down. You go get them. And I think that's an effective way to pray for those people that we care so much about. So thank you very much, Mike, for the call. Yes, I'm sorry I only had three minutes, and uh, it just didn't sound right what you were saying, at least in terms of a response that I would give. So we went back and looked at the question, and uh, on that particular day, it was a rebroadcast program. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, from our email inbox. Um, Pastor Arbaugh, I listen to your 5.30 in the morning radio messages, and I appreciate how humble you are in sharing your marital history. Uh, I really want to trust the Lord Jesus to heal my estranged husband from a long, long history of adultery. He has no history of alcohol use nor drug use. He professed Christ when we remarried in 2006. I know there's blessings in obedience to being in God's will. Since he is unrepentant and unseen, yet still paying some bills, etc., since we separated in 2017, do I wait until death do us part? This has been a 30-year battle. I divorced him in 2000. I've asked him for a divorce, but he won't. Please advise. You know, the good thing about about living in a modern society, and, and please don't anybody misunderstand what I'm going to say, but divorces aren't hard anymore. Now, I realize that some people take advantage of that, but but here's the the situation. You don't need your husband's permission to divorce him. Uh, You simply don't need that any longer. He has deserted you. He is guilty of violating the marriage covenant. And so um, uh, he's going to have to pay bills, paying alimony, things like that anyway. So, no, you don't have to wait. You have been given By the Bible, the Word of God, you have been given the freedom, Anonymous, to uh, live your life, to serve the Lord. And because you're the victim in this, uh, and and you don't indicate you have any interest in this, but but you're also free to remarry. I had that question on this program yesterday. Um, So no, you don't have to wait until the death do his part. He has violated the marriage covenant repeatedly. He has left the home. Um, the fact that he is sending you a little bit of money doesn't at all 
um, um, change the circumstances. You are living as a single woman, and uh, now you can um, divorce him. And you can do it without guilt. You can do it with freedom. And you don't have to worry about what anybody else says. There are some well-meaning Christians who do things that don't turn out well. They, they'll tell people, no, God hates divorce. You can't divorce. The Bible gives you the freedom to divorce in this case. So don't wait. Uh, as, as the Lord is obviously giving you the freedom to do this, then you pursue the divorce. And uh, you're, you're completely free to do that. For everybody else out there, I understand God hates divorce. If this man were in the home, and if there was a relationship, then it would be different. But he is guilty of violating the covenant on two ways. One, he's guilty of violating it uh, through through uh, his adultery, but also also through the abandonment. The Apostle Paul writes uh, to the church at Corinth: If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. And that's exactly what's happened. So now you're free to enjoy your relationship with God. You're free to find out what God has for you next. And you don't have to keep this this bondage to an an ideal. Yes, God hates divorce. Yes, marriage is a good thing. Uh, But in this particular case, you are free, 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 and feel free to pursue uh, that. Get an attorney. It's not too expensive. Um, um, I know you'll be fair, um, but but make sure you're taken care of as well. Thank you for the question, and I'm sorry that God has misrepresented or, or your husband has misrepresented the Lord to you. Here's a question from Kathleen from our mobile app. Uh, she said, do you endorse any particular version of the Bible? Yeah, Kathleen, I do. I think uh, the, the best New Testament translation by far is the 1984 NIV. Um, So that's what I teach from. That's what I use. That is my primary Bible. Uh, It's a 1984 version, not the 2011. And that's what you buy when you go into a store or Bible bookstore or to Amazon or anything else. Uh, The publishers aren't selling the the 1984s, but they're still available. I said this before. we got a wonderful woman in our church who is, um, uh, uh, you know, I keep saying, you know, you can't find the, the, the 84 NIV anymore. And she's made it, she's really good at searching things out. And, and, and probably not every time she comes to church, but much of the time when she comes to church, she's got a couple of copies of the, uh, of the 84 NIV that she's brought in. So it's out there, Kathleen, and you can find it. I don't believe it's the best translation uh, of the Old Testament. It is good and useful, uh, but I believe there are others that are a little bit better. But but if you're going to have one Bible that's going to be your go-to Bible, I think a 1984 version um, of the NIV is good. Now, that is not to say there aren't others that are good. The New King James is a good translation, and it's comfortable to read. Uh, I, I still like the, the original King James. Um, it's difficult uh, because the words in 1611 didn't mean the same thing or, or they don't mean the same thing now as they did in 1611. So it's a little bit awkward, but it's a good version. The NASB is a good version. Um, the, the ESV, um, while I'm not comfortable reading it, it, it's a version that people have found um, uh, very useful. So there's a lot of really good translations, but my favorite 
uh, Kathleen by far is the the 1984 NIV. Uh, I've you know because it's so hard to find, and I really don't want Christians buying the 2011 NIV. Um, I've threatened over the years. Well, you know, I better start teaching from something else, and I just never can quite make that break, Kathleen. So I'm very comfortable with it, and it is a wonderful translation of the New Testament. Great, great question. Thank you. Here is a question from Jill, also from our mobile app. Hi, Pastor On. More of an observation, but please comment. When Jesus saw the fig tree and wanted to eat, it looked fruitful, but it wasn't, and he cursed it. It withered and died. It's the same with some of us. We look like we're being fruitful in our actions and with the words we speak, but our hearts are not truly committed. Or even worse, we're just going through the motions. I agree with that, by the way, Jill. Even worse, we're just going through the Christianese motions. Uh, Then she continues, this lifestyle could leave us dead to God, and worse, we may not even be saved. So then we're cursed, and we do not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, um, um, one of the things about this story, Jill, that we have to remember always is that Jesus is very, very Jewish. And I keep saying we, we cannot ever forget the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry and his teachings. And this is one of those places. You'll remember the day before Jesus came into Jerusalem um, to be accepted as the Christ or to receive be received as the Christ, came exactly the right days, fulfilling prophecy by riding a donkey. Um, the people knew exactly who he was. They shouted Hosanna to the to the, the son of David. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew who he was, but they rejected him. It'd be just days later, they'll be shouting, give us Barabbas, crucify him. So they looked to be fruitful. It looked. I'm sure the disciples walking alongside Jesus down the streets uh, would have been thrilled. Oh boy, this is going better than Jesus thought it would. Uh, then he would look at the, the, the temple, the house of God. Uh, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, he said. And so even the temple that looked very fruitful, I mean, it was magnificent. But even that temple wasn't what it claimed to be. Jesus looked at and was challenged by the religious leaders with their long flowing robes, their beards, their phylacteries, their 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 utter commitment to, to legalism and Jewishness. And Jesus said, there were snakes, a brood of vipers. So it all looked fruitful, but none of it was. And the next morning on his way back from Bethany into Jerusalem, um, he saw a tree. And this tree looked like um, it had uh, fruit. He was hungry. And there wasn't a single fig, and that's why he cursed it. And I believe with all of my heart, Jill, that was just a an action sermon illustration. Jesus showing his disciples, this is what you saw yesterday in Jerusalem. This is what you're going to see for the rest of this week until I die. People saying one thing, but being something completely different. And that tree was just an example. And the tree, the fig tree, is a biblical symbol for Israel. And uh, I personally think, and this is my opinion only, I personally think that Jesus um, thought all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam, where art thou, Adam? And Adam said, we're over here and we're hiding. 
Um, and, and, and God, of course, knew that they'd fallen. They were trying to cover their nakedness with a fig leaf. And I think Jesus just sort of had enough. And that was his action sermon illustration. Um, so uh, uh, that's, that's my view on the triumphal entry and the things that happened around that time. Now, let me comment, Jill, on uh, your words, because I think these are very insightful. You said it's the same with some of us. We look like we're being fruitful uh, in our actions with the words we speak, but our hearts are not truly committed. Even worse, we're just going through the motions. I think you've just described uh, figuratively, literally, rather, half of uh, the Christian church. Uh, we, you know, we can say the praise the Lord's and the hallelujahs and the amens. But if we're just going through the motions, if we're not letting the word of God change our lives, then we're not being fruitful. Uh, I taught this not too long ago in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I asked my church, every individual, to examine themselves. If Jesus were poking around the leaves of your tree, the tree of your life, and he's looking for fruit... Would he find any? And most of the time our answer is, well, well, I'm a nice person, or I do this, or I try to do that. The reality is that's not just the fruit he's looking for. He's looking for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's the way our lives ought to look from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And if we're not demonstrating that kind of fruit, then the truth is we're just going through the motions. And we can rationalize it all we want. Too many Christians, Jill, are among those people who say, well, you know, you're going to sin. We can't be perfect. And then they use that to justify sinning in the manner that they want to or the manner that they choose to. And that can never be something, not ever, that uh, a Christian lets himself or herself fall into. Well, because I can't be perfect, I might as well do this. We can't use that as justification to sin, and there's just far too many Christians. Uh, I've been talking in these last few weeks on Sundays. Again, we're going with Jesus as he's walking to the cross. And I've been talking to uh, our church about uh, about the real person they are. Um, if If I could put a camera in your home, would I find a godly home? Would I, would I would I find a mom and a dad arguing in front of the kids? Would I would I would I hear foul language? Would I hear gossip? Would 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 I see kindness and faithfulness? Would I see the family doing family Bible studies together? Would I see them serving one another? Would I see people being selfish? And you know what the truth is, nobody's at home with us. And only those closest to us know the truth about us. And yet we can fool people, and we think somehow by fooling people that we're going to be okay, and we're just not. And in these last days, Jill, we don't have time for being phony. We just don't have time for being phony. I'm sure the people here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio are getting tired of hearing the same challenges week after week, but I, I warned them up front, we're going to the cross with Jesus and things get intense and we've got to be serious and we've got to be honest about the condition of our lives. And the truth is, there's a lot of people that come to church that have no intention of doing what they're told by the Bible to do. They have no intention of making any changes in their lives as a result of what the Holy Spirit is going to point out. 
And I think Jesus, with his arm digging around in the leaves of our our trees, our lives, I think Jesus is disappointed. I think his heart is broken. He's not angry. Remember, if Jesus gets angry, it's righteous anger. But what do we demonstrate online, social media? I'd like everybody in this listening audience to check their social media posts. Now, I'm not on social media, so it's easy for me to say, but but if, if you'd read stuff as a Christian before you posted it, I think you'd probably see that there's a whole lot of ungodly stuff there. Jesus is looking for people who will surrender to his lordship and be committed to him 24 hours a day because the time is short. The Apostle Paul says to redeem the time because the time is short. We're to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. And the most important place we can start is in those places that we think are secret. How would the people at your place of employment How would they view the fruit coming from your life? Would they say you're kind? Would they say you're, for men, are you a gentle man? Or ladies, are you a gentle woman? Are you patient with others? Do you keep a record of wrongs? True love doesn't. You see, those are the things that we're supposed to be able to say, Lord, my life, all of it, even those parts I've been holding for myself, It all belongs to you. So, Jill, thank you. Great observation. We have 30 minutes left in our show. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor. Continued prayers for you and Mama Paula. Thank you for those continued prayers. They mean more than you could possibly know. Here's the question. Is the Elijah that is mentioned in Second Kings the same Elijah mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 17? I only ask because in verse 13, the disciples mention that he's referring to John the Baptist. Am I overthinking this? No, you're not overthinking it. And you're right. Now, actually, Elijah's ministry is detailed more for in First Kings than in Second Kings, and uh, by Second uh, Kings chapter two, Elijah with a J, Elijah is off the scene, and Elisha S H takes over. Uh, that's where we are tonight. In fact, Elisha, the beginning of his ministry, uh, following. Uh, in the footsteps of Elijah, his mentor. Um, In Matthew chapter 17, let me read the passage for you. It says, disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, Elijah does indeed come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but have done to him whatever they wished, in the same way the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them 
about John the Baptist. So here's what Jesus is doing. Elijah, we know, uh, is going to be one of the two witnesses who will herald the second coming of Jesus. Jews understood that from the beginning. Elijah, with a J now, Elijah is going to come. Uh, Moses will be the other witness, but Elijah, we know for sure, is is one of the two witnesses uh, who will return. And he has to come before uh, the, the, the great and dreadful day of the second coming of the Lord. Now, what Jesus is saying, uh, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus said he does come first. But Elijah, and he's referring to John the Baptist, has already been here. In other words, just as Elijah will be the forerunner of Jesus' second coming, John the Baptist occupied the office and the position of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah. But he occupied the office and position of Elijah, and he was the forerunner of Jesus' first advent. So John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, he was pointing to the ministry of Jesus. I I always like to think, uh, Anonymous, of that moment when uh, Jesus in a line of people, he didn't cut the line, in a line of people to be baptized by John the Baptist when John looked up out of the water and saw Jesus standing there. Can you imagine what that must have been like? But Elijah, the office, was fulfilled by John the Baptist, and of course they beheaded him, and that's what Jesus is referring to. So you're not overthinking it at all. That's exactly right. Uh, he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he was not Elijah. He only fulfilled the same function as the forerunner to the Lord. Very good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Daniel. He said, Pastor Ron, I saw online that a Calvary Chapel in San Jose won their case and had the fines for meeting during the pandemic wiped out. Do you know any more about it? Daniel, I do. Uh, the Calvary Chapel there in San Jose is pastored uh, by uh, um, Mike Mac. I almost said Mike McIntosh. That's a different Mike McClure. Uh, and I know Mike fairly well. Uh, he was a good guy. And he was on the national news regularly. Uh, during the pandemic and during the quarantine periods because, as I think we all should have done, he refused to uh, close his church during the pandemic. People wanted to come to church. Um, we're commanded in the scriptures not to neglect the assembling together of the saints. And and this was a time when people needed ministering too. They needed to be able to use their gifts. They needed to be serving the Lord. And uh, he refused and he amassed over $2 million in fines. Now, the the, the, the only part, Daniel, that was um, forgiven at this point uh, was about 500000 of it in municipal fines, in city and county fines. Um, th- there were also federal fines totaling more than a million and a half dollars um, that... Uh, were federal. Some of the fines were federal and, and um, um, imposed uh, by health departments operating under the the, um, the, the government mandate, uh, and those are still pending. Now, obviously, this 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 ruling that just came down 
uh, at the end of last week, uh, this ruling uh, will will greatly affect the other. And I don't think there's anybody who is um, expecting anything other than all of the fines are going to be overturned as well. So this is, I think, uh, just sort of vindication. Uh, Calvary Chapel in San Jose is a, a decent-sized church, but certainly not a huge church, and they couldn't afford $2 million plus in fines. And it was one of those things where you have to decide, are we going to do what God says, or are we going to do what man says? And uh, Mike McClure uh, made the right choice, and this is just God showing off for those who stand for him. I say all the time to our church that if we stand for him, he'll stand for us. But too many of us, we sort of bail on him and you still want him to, to, to help us out. Uh, Mike McClure has been faithful and consistent and steady throughout all of this. He's never once gotten angry. Uh, he's been on the local media there repeatedly. He's never once gotten angry. He hasn't said anything that would be uh, hateful or childish. Um, uh, he's just let everybody know that, that we're doing what, what we believe God wants us to do. And if that's what it costs us, that's what it costs us. But we believe that God will will vindicate us. And that's exactly what's happened. So this is a really, really good thing. I know of two other Calvary chapels in other cities who, not to the same degree of fines, but they also remained open uh, much to the ire of their local communities. And they were fined repeatedly. And this kind of a precedent is going to be good for all concerned. Can I also say one other thing, Daniel, and this is to everybody in the audience. Paul and I were talking about this just yesterday. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, the, the mandates, the things that we were told we had to do or we were going to be killing people, including getting vaccinated, um, um, you know, all of those things have been very quietly rolled back. People have looked at it and said, you know, the things that we did, it didn't work. It didn't stop anything. And um, yet they're just backing away from them, unwilling to accept responsibility for ruining people's lives, for ruining our economy, for destroying um, the, the emotional psychology of so many of our kids who were out of school for such a long time. And then when got back, forced to wear masks. And now it's like, well, you know, it didn't work. Life goes on. And, and and the people who were on TV every day, I don't know if you're in San Antonio, you remember, we had a 613 television news conference with our mayor and county judge, causing everybody to be frightened, demanding that people change their lives. And people, foolishly, we did it. And there won't be one word of apology. Not one word saying, you know what? We thought we were doing the right thing, but we were wrong. We're sorry. I hope you can forgive us. Now, as Christians, I would hope that's what we would do. But that's not what the world that we live in is going to do. It's just like going just going to move on from and pretend like it never happened. And the damage it was caused is just overwhelming. And remember, I believe very strongly that the way to fix things is to be open and honest about what you did wrong. And we live in a time where people who say they're responsible for the safety and welfare of their constituents really don't care at all about that. 
think that's one reason why we realize as believers that political solutions, the man or the woman who occupies the office, who's in charge of the school board, none of that stuff really changes anything. And a lot of people are hurt beyond repair. Churches have closed. Some will never reopen. People's faith has been crushed all because we did what man said to do instead of being faithful to do what God told us to do. That's enough of the soapbox. Let me make one more comment. You know, one of the things that I've been almost obsessed with as I get older, it gets worse. Uh, I want to finish well. I don't know how much time I have left. I want to finish better than I started. I want to be somebody who lives every day to please the Lord and only to please the Lord and only to bring Him honor and glory. And when people ask me about vaccination or they ask me about closing the church, my response was, you know, first we believe Jesus is coming soon. But even if he tarries for a time, do I want to spend the last few years of my life locked in a house? Do I want to spend the last few years of my life being scared? Or do I want to spend the last few years of my life winning people to Jesus Christ? And that ought to be the perspective of every born-again Christian. Okay, that's really enough of my soapbox. 340-9585, Margaret's question is, I know we need to be obedient to God, but how do I keep from being legalistic in the process? You know, um, Margaret, Galatians 5, I'm sorry, Galatians 5, one says it's for freedom we've been set free. Uh, being obedient is not being legalistic. Being obedient is the place of freedom. Being obedient is honoring God and walking in the power of God's Spirit. I say just be with Jesus. You can't just be with Jesus if you're not being obedient. There's nothing legalistic about that. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is when you look at other people and look down on them because they're not doing what you're doing. Legalism always looks out, never in. Legalists think they've got to figure it out because I keep this rule, I keep that rule, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and shame on those people that aren't. That's what legalism is. So yes, we need to be obedient, but never, ever look out at other people. Now, if you've got people in your life, uh, life that you care about, people you love, and they claim to be Christians, and they're living ungodly lives, it's your responsibility to call them on it. That's not legalism. That's just our, our obligation to them. Paul says, I'm a debtor to both Greek and Jew. So you, you tell somebody that you care about, somebody that you, a friend, somebody that you work with, you just say, you know what, you talk about Jesus all the time, but you're living this way, you're doing this, and you can't be. you probably lose a friend. Your family members may cut you off, but that's okay. That's just the price of following Jesus. Jesus told us that families would be divided. But legalism is expecting other people to have the same point of view that you do, and legalism really uh, is a lack of faith because instead of trusting people who say they belong to God, instead of trusting God with them, you want to change and shape their behavior. So the thing is, as we look out at the, what other people are doing, pray for people. Don't judge them. Pray for people. It's okay to say what they're doing is wrong, Lord. 
That's not judging them. That's just the word says do this. They're not doing that. Lord, I know you love them. Go get them, Lord. Not go get them in a bad way, but but Lord, convict them of sin. That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit's job was. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And so we, we let God be the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be. And we enjoy the freedom that we have. And when you're obedient and God is smiling on you, uh, Margaret, there is absolutely no issue at all, none at all, uh, regarding um, being restricted at all. Thank you. Let's go to line one, Uvalde, Texas, and talk with Joe. Joe, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question, uh, uh, just uh, a general, there's no uh, uh, Bible verse. When Jesus uh, did miracles, uh, most of the miracles were, I mean, the miracles that he did, they were instantaneous. And now in today's modern day, uh, some miracles uh, that uh, ministers do, you know, God uses them, they're, sometimes they're instant, and other times they're gradual. And I just wanted to know why that is. And also I have a, a, a verse, John seven thirty-eight, where it says, uh, Jesus said that, uh, uh, as the scripture says, from the belly shall flow rivers of living water. I, I want to know where that verse is found somewhere else in the Old Testament, if you know uh, where that is referenced to, if, you can, if your research team can find it. Uh, yeah, I, I, can, I can give you that answer, Joe. Thank you. Uh, a couple things, miracles. And, and, you know, the miracles that Jesus did, we don't do those miracles. You know, when you, you talk about... Uh, pastors or preachers who claim to be doing miracles and knocking people over and pronouncing healings and they're gradual and and often they're not healing miracles at all. Um, uh, That's a missed point. Jesus, um, he did miracles. Those were the signs that pointed to him being the Christ. Now, God still heals, but he doesn't do it on command. More people do not get healed than who do by far, Joe, by far. And um, all, all you have to do is is look around at the result, and nobody can do the things that Jesus is doing. Uh, even the apostles uh, throughout the book of Acts, um, they didn't do anywhere near the numbers of healings. Jesus would heal entire cities, entire villages, uh, communities. Um, um, he was doing the work that, that, that validated him as being the Christ of God, the, the Jewish Messiah. Now, again, we see miracles, but, but to hear a lot of preachers these days, you think miracles happen just regularly, but that's the opposite of what a miracle is. A miracle, by definition, happens very infrequently. God chooses to heal some people sometimes, but the shows that we put on in churches, um, th- those are not miracles. That is not the Holy Spirit. The gifts of healing um, are, are not somebody with the says, God, I heal you in the name of Jesus. That's not a gift of healing. The gift of healing, the gifts plural, uh, Paul says when he talks about the gifts, those are gifts uh, to the person being healed. 
Uh, we pray for people to get healed all the time here at Calvary Chapel, and sometimes they do. Far, far, far most often they do not, but every once in a while God gives a gift of healing to somebody uh, when it's clearly in his will to do so. We can't figure out why God does some and doesn't heal others, uh, but there's no promise of healing um, uh, for those of us who live this side of the cross. We will all be healed from the one disease that has failed, the disease of sin, but we, we have no promise. No, There's nothing in the atonement that says that, that we will be physically healed of the ailments that are going to kill everybody. We need to understand that. Regarding the, the rivers of, of, of water that will come out, um, uh, come flowing from us. Jesus talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there's all kinds of pictures in the Old Testament. I, Isaiah's uh, prophecy talks about uh, um, living springs of water, wells that you didn't dig. Uh, there's all kinds of pictures of the of the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but there isn't a a, a companion verse um, when Jesus says rivers of flowing water or, or living water will come flowing from you. He's just talking about the power, the 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 water, the power of the Holy Spirit that will be in us and then come from us. And the best example of that. Uh, Joe is on the day of Pentecost uh, when uh, 3,000 people got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit all at the same time. And those people literally changed the world. That's the, the, the rivers of living water that flow from within. Good question, Joe. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to um, Marla, or no, Mirla. From San Antonio Online 2. Sorry for messing up your name. I don't see very well. Thank you for calling. No, you're fine. You're fine. Thank you so much. No, I was just listening to your answering that question uh, from the previous uh, person that called. And I just wanted to see if you could follow up uh, because I have several friends um, that they, you know, they they tend to always say that, that John 14, 12 through 14 uh, verses that say, whoever believes in me, the works that I have been doing, they'll do greater, even greater mm-hmm. things than these. So what is the context there? What is it that he's referring to? Because they always want to say that in order yeah. to, you know, to do what the other gentleman just said, you know, but the miracles and things like that, signs and wonders mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah, that's 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 often misunderstood, Merla. Thank you very, very much. Uh, very simply, uh, Jesus isn't talking about quality. Obviously, if you go to the end of, of John's Gospel, he says um, the miracles Jesus did were so numerous that if I wrote them all down, they would fill every volume of every book in the world. And and, uh, he, and and he's using hyperbole there a little bit to say that there's no way that, that the quality of miracles could be done. So what he's talking about uh, isn't the quantity of miracles. Um, what he's talking about is the result of those miracles. And when he says greater things than these will you do, he's talking about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. When Jesus left, he had about 120 followers. That's all. About 120 followers. Uh, He'd done all of these miracles. He talked to people. Uh, He changed people's lives. He healed the sick, uh, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, cast demons out. 
Um, but but still at the end, nobody believed the miracles. 120 people. On the very first day of the church, 3,000 men, not to count women and children, they got saved. So when Jesus said, greater things than these will you do, he's talking about the quantity of fruit or result that comes from their ministry. So uh, that's the greater things that he's talking about. Again, he's not talking about the quality of miracle, but he's talking about the result of the ministry of the apostles. And so he's saying greater things than these will you do. He's talking to 12. He's not talking to you and me. Incidentally, when you go through the book of Acts, And it says, and many signs and wonders were done. When it's describing the miraculous events uh, in the book of Acts, it says many signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. Now, it wasn't limited to apostles. Philip, we know, did miracles. Uh, Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church, did miracles. But to say that, that Jesus was one talking to us, is to miss the context of the passage of Scripture. That's just a, a simple hermeneutic. But um, most importantly, it's to miss the point. Um, and too many of us, we make miracles. Uh, we want miracles, but we don't want to surrender our hearts. And, um, you know, I think most people, uh, Merle, in our culture, wouldn't know a miracle if it bit them in the face, a real miracle of God, because we're going to church to get goosebumps. We're getting, we're going to church to fall on the ground. We're going to church to, to get something from God instead of going to church, as Paul suggested, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And so the, the idea that greater things than these will you do, it's simply the fruit that comes from your ministry will be infinitely greater than the fruit that came from mine. My time here on earth, I did all these things, and I was left with about 120 people. Um, the first day of the church, 3,000 men. A couple of days later, 5,000 men. So you think a week into the church, and there were 20,000 people converted from Judaism to Christianity. That's the greater thing that he's talking about. And then, of course, when the Apostle Paul comes along and the gospel is going to be spread to the Gentiles, um, um, that's something Jews couldn't even begin to imagine. Uh, that's the greater things that he's talking about. He's not talking about you're going to do greater miracles. And every time, if people be honest, every time they go to church, uh, looking for these miracles, and you got people running around the sanctuary and people running around on stage and people speaking in tongues all at once and people claiming, oh, I was healed, I was healed. Um, the reality check is all we have to do is look around logically and we see that those things weren't really done at all. Does God sometimes do marvelous miracles? Yes. I've been able to be a part of a couple of those. But most of the time, he just says his grace grace is sufficient. Good question, Merla. Thank you. Hey, appreciate the calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.